Welcome to the second part in our special Law and Borders series with law firm Morton Fraser, in which we are taking an in-depth look at the real estate market in Scotland. Today, I am joined by Rory Alexander, a partner in the firm's planning team, and Jonathan Seddon, a partner in the construction team. Hello to you both. Hi, James. How are you? Good, thank you. Good. We're enjoying the sunshine, as I know you both are as well. Um, So last week, uh, Jonathan and Alan Stewart gave us an overview of the COVID-19 impact on various um, real estate sectors. But Rory, obviously, one of the key strands of the response to the pandemic has has have, have been made through the planning system, as the events of the last 15 months have necessitated a, a much more flexible approach to land use in, in certain areas. So what form has that taken up in Scotland and it, has it differed much to England? Uh, yeah, thanks, Jess. It is it is an interesting um, space we found ourselves in. Obviously, there was a worldwide pandemic going on and lots of other things. But then, once particularly local planning authorities realised that the system needed to continue, they, they, to be fair, they really did spring into action in Scotland. Um, some of the practical things that had to be done very quickly was to to move planning committees online to allow the decision-making processes to continue to meet their statutory deadlines. There, they also had to get internal authorities sorted out through standing orders and whatnot to allow that to happen. And I think we all saw the the Jackie Weaver Hanford Parish Council um, (laughs) decision-making processes being questioned. But these these were practical things that had to happen internally within uh, councils and local planning authorities. Um, so that I was I was really impressed to be perfectly honest that literally within weeks they'd fully moved on to um, online committee meetings, which was no mean feat, and really to keep the system going. Um, at a government level, for Scottish government level, again practical things that really helped just extending the duration of planning consents. So you know the, the initial few weeks, the constant phone calls from clients was in relation to was there consent going to lapse? Was there an issue here? The government stepped in and really now the position in Scotland is that um, if your consent would have lapsed from April last year and to September this year, it's automatically extended to the end of March 2022, which again just gives comfort and certainty to clients that they don't have to worry about initiating development to try and preserve the consent. Lots of other things I think that will continue. Um, a big shift from in terms of community engagement and pre-application events all went to digital engagement. And I think generally most people would say they're much better now. Mm. Um, and a, and a, a kind of a real benefit that I, I'd like to think that will continue rather than the traditional kind of dusty town hall event with uh, uh, some papers in the corner, a much more digitally engaged scenario, which really gives people the full effect of what the development will look like in the surrounding area. And I suppose other kind of practical one, just using, you know, allowing uh, temporary planning consents for emergency purposes. So the really important stuff in terms of testing centres and hospitals and whatnot, that was all sorted out, more practical things for businesses so if you wanted to do um, pavement seating or whatnot for your your bar or cafe you could just get on and do that with minimal fuss um, so lots of lots of good things and the appeal process mirrored that actually to be fair so Scottish ministers at the Department of Planning and Environmental Appeals again went online and 
we had um, we had online hearings and inquiries within a pretty short space of time in Scotland, which again worked pretty well. So lots lots of good things on that side of things, I would say. And Rory, with regard to the the, the planning documents being being online and the virtual committee meetings, these these type of things, presumably they were things that ultimately would have happened eventually anyway, but they just one of these speeded up trends, if you like, that that, that happened a lot quicker in 2020 because of necessity. Yeah, yeah, I think that I think that is right. Um, the one thing I, I would maybe question, I think there's always a role for an in the room meeting for some of the bigger planning decisions when, when we're allowed to, when it's safe mm. to do so. And I think we probably will go back to those in the bigger planning and hearing and inquiry sessions and the, the bigger decisions being taken by local planning authorities. I suspect that we will be in the room where people can, you know, make their case face to face. But a lot of the procedural side of things, more straightforward decisions, uh, totally agree. I think it, we should certainly have a hybrid system going forward. I'd be all for that. Mm. And with regard to the governments, um, w w when they posed the route map this time last year and, and, uh, and looked at the possibility of being flexible with regard to applications from developers and contractors to alter their site hours um, to, to, to allow them to get projects back on track or to work differently because of the pandemic. I, I certainly have got a number of clients who responded pretty positively about uh, about the uh, about the about the impact of that on their developments, which again was a, another another kind of positive in terms of the, the government, as you say, stepping in and and uh, and, and helping out with, with with the construction sector in particular, which was also struggling at the time. Yeah, I th and I, I think that generally did help. When you look at as was one of the key sectors we were involved in in terms of house builders, and they really they really have been allowed to continue pretty much through the period um, on site and through the planning process, which has been enormously helpful. Yeah. And obviously a, a key part of the, the, the building back better or the, the recovery from the pandemic is, is going to be instructed by the, the planning process. And, and I know uh, down here we've seen uh, things like changes to permitted development rights and um, use classes that, that in theory, uh, make uh, changing property needs um, easier to address. Uh, is, is that something that's that's sort of taking a similar path up in Scotland? Yeah, and I, I think the, I suppose the big, the big document that's coming through at the minute in Scotland will be the National Planning Framework 4, which is mm. going through the consultation process at the minute. And we should have a draft of that in autumn time mm -hmm. this year um and you can tell from that document in terms of everything coming through at the minute that there's a a real focus on building back better and building back greener with a focus on net zero emissions resilient communities well-being economy and i suppose finally importantly better greener places um and the importance of that document going forward will be that it will form part of the statutory development plan. Um, so why is that important? I suppose that certainly in Scotland we have, and, and England, we have a plan-led system. Mm. And the starting point for all decisions will be to look at the statutory development plan, which going forward will be made up of the national planning framework, and then the local development plan, which will be produced by the relevant local planning authority. 
authority. So it will be a key document and everything coming through on that is is very much green focused. So it'll be interesting to see how that develops. I, I have to say, Rory, I, I would agree with that. I'm very enthusiastic about that. In the, in the podcast, one that Alan Stewart and I did uh, last week, we were looking very much at, um, at, at potential investment and, and, and where... Where where uh, where money had been coming into the country in 2020, uh, investing into property, and of course next week we'll be looking at where that might go in terms of projections for future asset classes and future areas of investment. And I think this um, the MPF will help massively with that because it kind of pulls together a, um, a, 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 a at a very kind of perfect storm moment, if you like the plan for Scotland to, to as you say, to, to, to build back better, better in terms of, you know, a, a well-being economy, you know, an eye on climate change as well. And I think that foreign investment in particular will look at that and it will be another tick, if you like, in the economic and political box of should I invest in Scotland or should I not? You know, it, it shows a coordinated and, and well thought through at a higher level. This is what Scotland is all about going forward. So I'm, I'm very enthusiastic about that. Yeah, and, and I think that's the, in some ways, the the beauty of MPF in that it will pull together all planning policies in one place. So, and it will be part of the statutory development plan, as I mentioned. So it'll be very clear in terms of, I suppose, the golden thread of planning running through the local development plans, what the intention is for Scotland in terms of green policies and, and other policies going forward. So you would hope from an investor's point of view, it would give more clarity in terms of what they can and indeed we might want to avoid when they're, when they're, when they're taking a project forward in Scotland. Absolutely. I think that's exactly it. And, and in the retail space for, for this type of thing, I know that there will probably be a, a drive to develop and reinvigorate town centres on the retail side of things because obviously they're more easily accessible by foot or or by bike and at the expense perhaps of out of town retail parks where you also drive to to, to them in in most cases and it's an interesting one that we see just now in the in the easing out of lockdown in 2021 the fact that out of town retail parks are actually quite popular because you know, A, you can drive, but B, these units are much, much bigger. So it's easier to social distance in them. It's easier to stay two metres apart. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how that particular thread sits with the the the, the, the coronavirus uh, uh, pandemic measures. Um, because I can see on, on, on one way, I can see consumers wanting to prefer out of town for the next certainly the next six months to 12 months, maybe even longer. But of course, from a, from a central government point of view and a local government point of view, you know, and as part of the thread of the MPF, you, you can see why it's crucial to try and promote the, the town centre side of the retail. So that'll be an interesting to see how that pans out. Yeah, and you're quite right there. I, I think the policies coming forward, going forward, I mean, it, there's always been a focus on town centres to get me wrong from a planning perspective, but there's certainly going to be a heightened focus on it going forward through MPF and through local development plans. Um, everything will be focused on sustainable modes of transport. I think that's very clear. I think for new housing development, which I suppose is linked, it's a, this idea of 20 minute neighbourhoods, which I know has been discussed a lot before, which I quite like, where 
when you're planning homes and developments, you, you're doing that together with everyday local infrastructure, whether that's schools, shops, community centres, GP surgeries, which makes a lot of sense to encourage people to, to walk or take the bike to these places rather than automatically jumping in the car. So I think that will all feed through. And, you know, you know yourself when you're in parts of Scotland at the minute, town centres are struggling. They're, they're, some some are thriving. That, I think that will always be the case, but a lot are really struggling and everything that can be done to try and reinvigorate them and in terms of the sense of place and open space around them has got to be a good thing. I think you mentioned local place plans there. Was that right, Rory? That's right. Um, this is um, the Plan in Scotland Act 2019 has a number of of enabling provisions with it. And one of those is the introduction of local place plans, which is obviously something that we've uh, we've looked down south and thought we, we, we will try that too. Um, I, yeah, I it's it's an interesting one where, where we've ended up with them is that they won't form part of the statutory development plan, which a lot of people were pushing for. There will be a material consideration in the in deciding um planning applications um but as ever when you go through planning reform the the thorny issue of third party right appeal always comes up um and i suppose my my own take on this was that the introduction of local place plans was a bit of a nod a bit of a sop to say well we can't do third party right of appeal but we can do local place plans um It'll be interesting to see how they develop. I, it, by all accounts, we're not going down the route in England where there will be local referenda and whatnot to put them in place. I think it'll be a more straightforward, more community-led process. Um, I suppose one of the concerns may be that it'll be in the more affluent, more well-organised areas where there'll be a big take-up on them, and mm. um, maybe not so much in other areas where it could be great for that particular area but you know where we can go it can it can certainly help shape policy and development in your in your area by putting one together but from looking what needs to be done with them help will be needed and i suppose at the minute it's not completely clear whether that will come from local planning authorities will there be grants available from the scottish government how do local people actually get this and put it into a form that could could subsequently be submitted to, to be adopted by the local planning authority. Mm. And you can see it. You're right, Rory. I think in in terms of the take up will broadly speaking be more likely to be higher in the more affluent areas, um, but also perhaps in those uh, areas where there's a tighter local community. You know, a rural type of areas. I'm thinking even your islands where people have their community spirit of we like to do it our way type of idea. Yeah, and I, I think the, it's quite interesting. They issued guidance. The Scottish Government issued some guidance um, at the start of the year in relation to this, and it was quite keen to stress that it, it, it wouldn't be a way of stopping development. Um, it's not a wish list of unrealistic demands from developers. It's about shaping development going forward. Um, and it, to be honest, I think if communities used in the right way, I think it could be highly effective if you if you if it's to be used the mm. right way and to target 
you know, especially now, open space is such a big thing now, and to mm. better quality open space would be a an, an area to focus on if, if I was taking one forward rather than using it as a chart to try and stop things, try to shape it, whether it's lower density development, different types of development or mm. development, but with, with more community facilities around it and involved in it. I know at UK government level, it almost seems like you're, you're never more than five minutes away from the next planning reform announcement, but um, uh, and there's a certain degree of planning reform fatigue that, that you hear <laughs> when you speak to to planning lawyers, but overall, it, it, it sounds like you're a little bit more positive about the the the, the path to planning reform that, that is being followed up in Scotland, Rory. Well, uh, you, you, I'm always an optimistic person. <laughs> um, I, I, what I would say, we've been, we've kind of been through the, the pain. Um, you know, planning reform in Scotland started back in. 2015 we finally got an act in 2019 so it took a long time to get the new act um what I would say as well which has been to contact in the scottish parliament the most heavily revised act he's he's aware of in scottish parliament history pretty much every page from the instruction of the bill to the final act was rewritten which just shows you that the amount of change just during that process was pretty unheard of um, but we're, we are where we are now. We've got we have the new act, but provisions are now starting to come in for the, some of, some of it to come in. We've got enabling provisions for things like local place plan and infrastructure levy. So the tools are there now to try and use it and try and make sure that we've got good sustainable development going forward. So let's hope we can do that. And, and interestingly, Rory, you talked about the plan reform, which as you say, first kind of kicked off of like the current phase in 2015 and one of the big drivers at that point was obviously to increase housing delivery um, and regardless of your views as to whether or not that has been a success over the last five to six years in Scotland you certainly sense at the moment a, a, a much bigger drive on the residential development side um, you know not just house plot sales but but, but also in the in the build to rent space where you know, with Glasgow especially, you can see an enthusiasm from from not just the, the, the investors and the developers, but the, the council now as well, I think, to recognise that that rented space is, a, is, is another way to start to eat into these, these aspirational housing goals that we set ourselves. Yeah, and, you know, it's, it's, this, it's probably one of the, the bigger issues that we're facing as a country in terms of we, we, we don't have enough homes, we do, we do need more, and we do need a mechanism to make sure they're being generated. I think the build-to-rent space is fascinating in terms of a relatively new asset in Scotland, which is now being embraced, I suppose, isn't it? I know it sounds overly yeah. dramatic, but it, it now is coming forward with a number of schemes that certainly we're aware of in Edinburgh and Glasgow. I know there's been some in Aberdeen as well. Um, Dundee seems pretty open. A lot of lot of great things from my, my hometown going on up there mm-hmm. at the minute um, in in that space. So it's good to see, and certainly in the the city centre areas, that that's coming forward. Um, on housing numbers, I think that will that that is going to be fascinating going forward because part of national planning framework four will be how we're going to sort out housing numbers for the individual areas. So that's going to be a, there's going to be a clear, I suppose, tension between the Scottish Government on one hand with National Planning Framework and local planning authorities on the other hand with their own local development plans and where they're going to 
put the houses, um, which mm. is always difficult at the local level. So to be fair to the government, they at the minute, they seem to have gripped it to some extent in terms of putting housing targets within the national planning framework. But again, there's a little bit of uncertainty around that. But if that does go ahead, it, it certainly does set the tone that we do need to deliver these numbers in terms of the plans and developments coming forward. Yeah. And, and again, on the build to rent space, you, you what you're looking at there is not just high density, but also quality space as well. So whereas maybe previously in the, in the more densely packed areas, you, you were looking at relatively poor quality space in the high end BTR side, you're, you're, you're actually building these really quite attractive developments to look at from the outside and to live in from, from the inside, whilst also, you know, per per acre of space, ticking off quite a lot of the, the numbers as you go along. Yeah, and I think the one, I suppose, the one thing that some local planning authorities are grappling with a little bit at the minute, and it has been resolved and it, and it, it continues to evolve, is how you capture affordable housing requirements within that, because it is quite a different asset to the normal, you know, PLC builder putting in a couple of hundred units. And we're now, I think we're now at a place now where, where that can be adequately captured within Section 75 agreements, which are uh, Section 106 in England and Wales, and how you make sure that affordable housing requirements are fulfilled through these developments as well. And you mentioned the infrastructure levy uh, a little while ago, which is obviously, um, you know, this, that's a vital part of delivering development. Um, what are your thoughts on on how that will play out? I think it's really interesting. This um, this started in Scotland on the back of um, a Supreme Court case involving uh, Chapter of Elsick and Aberdeen City and Shire Strategic Development Plan. That was a case that we were involved in, which was, was fascinating. And what that case did it was highlighted that there is an issue in Scotland in terms of delivering major infrastructure where you can't show that link between the proposed development and the infrastructure required for it. Um, it's gone a bit quiet in that space. Um, there's now the enabling provisions within the 2019 Act to do it. There's also a sunset clause, so if they don't do it by 2026, it will fly off. So, so don't get me wrong, there's still you know five years to go, but it is interesting it's been a bit quieter in that space in terms of what that infrastructure levy will look like in Scotland. Um, you know, things like, will there be exemptions to it in terms of viability issues, which comes up a lot in planning gain generally. Um, it looks like we're going to have a two-tier system. So, you know, Section 75 agreements will continue to capture more localised um, planning gain and the infrastructure levy will sit on top of that. Um, types of development that will pay into it, will it just be housing developments, will other developments pay into it? Who's going to pay it? Which is always a critical question. Will it be payable by the landowner or the developer going forward? Timing of payments, um, who's going to collect it? Will it be the local authority or will it be central government? There's there's a lot of unknowns at the minute, as you can probably tell by my mm. series of <laughs> questions. Um, I think from my point of view, and certainly speaking, to uh, clients in the house building sector, if it's at the right level, they, they'd be more than happy to pay into it. I think that's clear, uh, as long as it's clear and it's um, pitched at the right level, 
they're, they're not going to have a big issue around it. And the benefit of that is, well, it will give, you know, whether it's at the, the, the kind of more strategic level um, or whether it's at the local level, much more flexibility to spend where they want to spend rather than being beholden to paying into a particular school or a particular bit of transport infrastructure. So there's definite benefits to it, but I just feel it's going to be slightly quiet. Um, so we'll have to watch the space a little bit. And, and England, uh, England's a bit, a bit further ahead than us on this on this one, isn't it? And if I understand rightly, the clients that I've got that operate down south as well have kind of, I think there's kind of mixed views as to quite how well this has uh, progressed down south. So we're kind of we're watching and waiting. There's either you know either lessons to be learned, perhaps ideally, um, if, if if that is the case, to try and make it a bit more effective up here than it has been down south. Yeah, undoubtedly, and I think you know it's it's obviously not something I'm particularly close to, but from speaking to to opposite numbers in English firms, it, it's clearly been heavily heavily amended over the years. The infrastructure levy in England, there's been some fairly high profile issues with it, particularly around, I think, which is quite an interesting space, particularly around where the financial viability aspect of it and whether if you were to ease it, does that introduce procurement issues for you? Um, potentially even state aid issues, I suppose, mm. if you're if you if you're allowing one development to go forward at a, you know, a much reduced infrastructure levy or or none. Um, mm. So I, th I think there is there is a lot there in terms of how to get it right. I think that take similar in England that it will be uptake in certain areas in Scotland. Um, I suspect it will really probably be contained to um, Glasgow, Edinburgh, Aberdeen and Dundee. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe maybe a part of Fife, I'm not sure, but I, again, I don't I don't see them, see there being a great clamour for it outside the city centre areas where there can be a bit more of a, uh, you know, a, a strategic impact and infrastructure needed. Yeah. And uh, obviously, another uh, major issue for, for the planning system to contend with um, that, that we're perhaps in danger of having taken our eyes off a little bit in 2020 and 21 is uh, environment um, in the environment and sort of climate uh, change and the, the um, carbon reduction targets that that are looming on the horizon. Um, how much impact um, is that aspect uh, having on on the reform of the planning system in Scotland? Yeah, I, again, I think everything is certainly focused to a green recovery. Um, when you look at what's happening in Scotland at the minute, it was interesting last week that um, it looks like there's going to be some form of cooperation agreement between the SNP and the Scottish Green Party. Um, the SNP are a minority government, I think by one, um, they have operators in a minority government four, but I think just to uh, just to really show their green credential, they're, they're clearly wanting to do that with the Greens. They've all been very clear to say it's not a coalition for, for obvious reasons <laughs> with what happened <laughs> with the Lib Dems. Um, so it will be some form of cooperation agreement, but I think I think that is interesting um, when it's, it's on the face of it, it isn't needed to govern, but I think it will just be a, a useful thing to do to make sure that green policies continue to be at the forefront of policy making in Scotland. And it is going to require, Rory, the risk of stating the obvious, 
to actually get there and to meet these targets and to put the green econ economic recovery at the heart of the build back uh, thing, it's it's going to require real strong commitment from from the government to 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 put that at the heart of what we're doing. Well, indeed, and I think um, I was I was looking this morning just to refresh my memory, and that the target, the net zero emission for all greenhouse gases target is is twenty forty five, which when you think about it, is not long at all to get that to zero. Again, mm -hmm. the UK government have taken very recently announced very aggressive target as well, the cutting emissions by seventy eight percent by twenty thirty five. This is all, I suppose, linked to um, Glasgow hosting COP26 in November. Um, and I think what we'll find now is there will be a real focus from both governments in terms of green announcements and, and funding for green projects, which we're seeing coming through all, already. I think we'll see a lot more of um, onshore and offshore wind in Scotland and carbon capture, which is always been bubbling underneath in Scotland from a policy perspective, but I think we'll start seeing more projects coming through on that side of things. Mm. And it does kind of, in terms of timing, it does feel like, you know, certainly COP26 is coming on the back of a of a 12-month period where we have all, a lot of us have, you know, had a more of a personal focus on well-being, space, health, you know, and of course the follow-on from that is, you know, climate change and um, and that type of thing. So it feels like there is a a, a momentum behind it. Um, that this this year's this year's COP in Glasgow is going to be quite a, a crucial one in terms of driving the targets going forward. Yeah, and I, th I think even just obviously recently elections in Scotland and the real big increases from the Scottish Greens. Um, a lot of manifest commitments from the SNP and others, actually really, probably all the major parties in terms of um, green policies and green commitments going forward. So it's clearly, it's got political momentum, but it's probably got public momentum behind it as well, um, where, where people want to see it happen. Mm. And lastly, we've, we've talked a, a little bit about some of the ways in which the planning system in Scotland has diverged from, from that in England. And, as that increasingly happens over the years, does that create any issues for you with, with clients that operate uh, both sides of the border or, or, or even any local tensions on, on those border towns where, you know, you could be living five minutes from some someone else and, and your planning application might be treated in a very different way? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I suppose we're, we're in a position in Scotland where planning environmental policies have been devolved really from the start mm. so we've we've all we've always had that system um as much as there's a lot of overlap and there's there's a lot certainly from a case law perspective you would use english case law as certainly being helpful in scottish cases and vice versa because the systems are very similar but yeah i think you're quite right where where we could see further diver divergence is certainly um, on the green agenda side of things and you, you do wonder will it be more appealing for certain developments to be in Scotland rather than England and vice versa. Energy area I think is interesting. I think um, whatever energy mix we end up having going forward, will it be a case where it's just going to be easier to do that in England rather than Scotland going forward if it's more of 
traditional energy production or nuclear, dare, dare I say it. I suspect that could well be the be the case in terms of the energy mix that we need going forward. Um, so I, I think it is, and it goes back to Johnny's point, I suppose, in terms of Scotland PLC, how do you make it attractive to investors? Mm. Um, and I suppose you, you are Edinburgh, is going against Manchester and other areas, I suppose, aren't they, for investment? So how do you make sure that you're projecting a more straightforward area as possible to, to come into business and develop? And I think that's a big a big job for the Scottish Government to make to keep that at the forefront of their minds too, as well as uh, as everything else that they're they're contending with. Mm. And I think you mentioned earlier, Rory, you're you're, ob- you're obviously flying the Dundee flag from your roots. <laughs> Dundee is a is a good example of a, I think of, of some somewhere that stood out recently as as a kind of come and do business here. We're open for development, and and and, and there's really there's a lot of great projects have have, have been undertaken and completed in Dundee um, recently. And of course, they are part of the same, you know planning and development regime as, as the rest of the country, but they've they've managed to, you know, stand on a pedestal, pedestal if you like, and, and promote themselves. So I suppose there's always there's always a way to 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 to, to get around the, the, the local constraints and to stand out from the crowd if if you if you're minded to do so. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think um particularly at the local level there's there's many things you can do to encourage that development i think what what dundee did very well and this is going back a number of years ago they got the dundee waterfront regeneration included in um the national planning framework as a as a, a nationally significant development for the country and really from there has flowed the vna coming in on the back of that lots of hotel and office development on the back of that two strong universities who continue to develop in, in the student accommodation sector and other housing sectors. And now, I think it was last week or the week before, the, the Eden project's been announced as part of that waterfront mm. redevelopment. So you're probably going back 10 or 15 years for that process to start, and it's now really beginning to come through. And I think that longer-term vision is definitely what is needed. Yeah. Yeah, I was being told by a GP yesterday that, that Dundee has now got the best reputation for the medical school in Scotland. Really? Oh, that's great. So, uh, yeah, another example of the good things happening there. Okay, well, um, thank you to you both. Uh, I think Scotland PLC will be a topic to which we return um, next week, Jonathan, when, when Alan's back with us and we we uh, discuss um, the future of investment. Yes, looking forward to that one. Yeah, and uh, yeah, thanks very much for for joining us for this episode, Rory. Well, thank you. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Thanks very much. Uh, You have been listening to Law and Borders from the EG Property Podcast.